BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. He's in this episode of Murder, Hero. The episode's okay, but his character's name is Matt Matthews. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. Welcome to Gold Diamonds of Death, a James Bond podcast. I'm your double O host, Jonathan Watkins. I'm a writer for all things under the Cinema Sins brand name and co-host of the Behind the Sins podcast. Joining me each and every week for this endeavor, he is the co-founder of Cinema Sins and co-host of the weekly podcast, Recotopia, and has a license to kill pointed straight at your fucking heart. Mm-hmm. He's also one of my good friends. Mr. Chris Atkinson, how are you doing? Hello. How is life? Doing all right. It's, you know, not that anybody listening to the Bond podcast that we've come out with is going to know this, but like it's been, what, a month since we did the last recording or something? It's been at least like, it's been three weeks, I think. I think it's been yeah, three weeks. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in the middle of the Timothy Dalton ones and it's like, it feels like it never ends because... <laughs> <laughs> like he's only done five he's only done two movies and uh whatever but uh yeah yeah um doing fine doing good yeah recording ahead gets you that luxury sometimes but it's also weird too because mm-hmm. you get it's like a big gap between two it feels like we've watched like five timothy dalton films is what yeah it feels like. exactly and i wish i wish there were five timothy dalton films we can talk about that mm-hmm. later. In, a, in another yeah in another life there would have been i will say going to this not giving away my thoughts on this either way but when we when you agreed to you know, do this with me. This was one of the episodes I was looking very much forward to. I've always wanted to have a conversation with somebody about License to Kill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I get my opportunity. Yeah, I think this is a really fascinating one to talk about. This is a really fascinating part of the franchise. You got the end of the 80s. The Berlin Wall, you know, comes down this year. Uh, the Cold War is ending. I mean, for more or less, yeah. More, more or less, yeah. I mean, and Bond kind of plays off the current politics. So when you have big events like this, you know, it's interesting just to kind of see how this movie plays at the time and then where they go from that point. Because all of a sudden, like, you know, uh, who they have as bad guys, maybe they're not really bad guys anymore. And I don't know. Anyway, so this is just an interesting, uh, kind of an interesting point of 
the Bond franchise for me personally. Um, so let's just go ahead and get into it. Uh, our first segment, we like to call it Eon Flux. This is a journey. I'm gonna make a movie! We have to go back, Kate. Wow, how did you know all that stuff? I did my research. I don't understand any of this. What the fuck is going on? We are gonna scour through the history of Eon Productions and give you all the highs and lows that went into the making of these films. So... Just the basic stuff here. This is 1989. Uh, this is the 16th entry uh, in the official franchise. It is the second and final film to star one Mr. Timothy Dalton, even though Chris and I have watched at least five of his films. Mm-hmm. We're yep. positive. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it premiered in London on June 13th, 1989. Oddly, it didn't actually officially get released until July 10th, but they had a big premiere uh, June 13th, about a month before, which is kind of, I think that kind of happens now. Like, I feel like the UK always knows about, like, talks about these films on social media, like, a month before we ever get it. So, mm-hmm. but anyways, it was officially released in the UK July 10th, and then it was released in the US four days later on July 14th. On a budget of $32 million, it grossed 156.1 worldwide. Only 34.6 of that was in the U.S. This mm-hmm. was not uh, financially successful in the U.S. It finished 36th at the box office, which is easily, easily the lowest. The official bonds, at least, it sure. finished. I don't remember where the I don't remember where Casino Royale fell, but uh, I think it was even higher than this. But I don't remember off the and, top of my head. Of course, a lot less movies getting released in '67 too, so that's a whole different story. Yeah, and I'm sure you were about to get to this, so sorry if I'm like. Like, no, go for it. Whatever, but jump in. This is a well-known summer, 1989, yes. where like yes. every huge blockbuster ever came out. Yes. Like it was Lethal Weapon 2, and it was Last Crusade, and it was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Batman, and blah blah blah. All these movies came out, uh, uh, and and there's so UHF. many. There's no, wait, I was about to hit. say <laughs> there's so many stories of movies that came out that were good yeah. or could have done well that ended yeah. up, and UHF was one of them, and 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 this and. This this movie of course and i mean i did have some of that written down i think you're dead right okay so i mean first off the top three films of 1989 were indiana jones and last crusade Mm -hmm. batman Mm -hmm. and lethal weapon 2 domestically those were the top three films lethal weapon 2 comes out like this almost kind of feels like a thing an et thing although this was not as big of a bomb as the thing Mm -hmm. or it wasn't really a bomb but i mean it wasn't it wasn't that low grossing the thing was a different story Mm -hmm. but it is interesting that Lethal Weapon 2 comes out like a week before this. Mm-hmm. And Lethal Weapon 2 was huge. And yeah. I I do wonder, and then, then then they're like, well, I don't want to just go see a Bond film. I want to see like Lethal Weapon 2. I want to see something like that. Even though we're going to talk about this, this Bond film feels more in line with like Joel Silver yeah. and a Lethal Weapon movie than it does a Bond movie, which is really interesting. Yeah, But no, I think that's another thing that's interesting about this, uh, talking about this movie, because... 1989 is kind of a summer that I feel like started changing like the way summer movie seasons would go. Mm-hmm. Like maybe this had happened before, but like I can remember Batman being advertised like in the fall mm-hmm. before, you know, it wasn't coming out for like nine months or whatever. Yeah. And they had full previews of it. Maybe that was more common than I remember, but I don't remember that being common. It is now. Yeah. I, I have no like, idea, but, uh, but that's very, it's very possible that the, that the idea of, uh, advertising a movie almost a year before it comes out started yeah. around this time and then you have all this stuff just it's just everything's opening huge i mean it's just a huge summer and i and i it kind of is a precursor to what happens because you know and like by 92 i mean this is just kind of the norm you know that's when the next batman uh lethal weapon and honey i the kid films come out so that's kind of <laughs> fitting but yeah but it also takes a couple of years for everybody to kind of get on board with this so it's interesting like like 
I I guess like I can see why people felt License to Kill felt like a like a thing from the past, but but I think that's just because nobody went and saw it. Because mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll talk about that when we talk about the movie. But yeah, so also to bit Ghostbusters two, which is not good, but it was a huge hit. Yeah, uh, that was another one that had come out before uh, before Bond. Uh, Ghostbusters two, which I think both you and I have the same story, have kind of the same history with that, where that felt like the first movie where I realized not everything was good. Yeah, I'll never forget. <laughs> I'll never forget watching Ghostbusters two, and then uh, I, I played a a baseball game. I think I was in a rec baseball game. Uh, either that night or or the next day or something. And I remember telling my teammates or some of my teammates that I was like, man, Ghostbusters 2 wasn't very good. I was really surprised <laughs> by that. Like, how is it How is it that I – this is the first time I've ever felt this way, like really yeah. disappointed in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Well, I think it's because we were both probably – we're both huge Ghostbusters fans, mm-hmm. so we were – we were stoked. I was like 13. I guess you were 12. And yeah. I mean, it, you know, it just seemed like, how is this movie not going to be perfect? Uh, I remember even watching, like they did this big, th- like they were on the tonight show and the today. I mean, like I watched them on Oprah and I was, you know, like leading up to it, all these interviews with the entire cast. Mm-hmm. It was, it was such a big deal. Uh, only to be followed up by maybe the next big deal was that fall when Back to the Future Part Two came yeah. out. Uh, yeah, and although I like Back to the Future Part Two, I actually do like that yeah. movie. But I know that was and it 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 made a lot of money too. I do feel like it it was a little disappointing at the time to people. Yeah, I think well, people have definitely come around on it, and they haven't come around on Ghostbusters Two because Ghostbusters Two is terrible. Yeah, a lot of I don't know. Ghostbusters Two has a surprising amount of uh, it does. People, it has but, a fan base. Uh, I but, should, that's fair. But Back to the Future Two, I remember people not liking because they the people couldn't really follow the the little time travel. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. go, so it's so confusing. It's so confusing. And then Back to the Future 3 comes out, and everybody's like, oh, it's finally back to normal. But I think <laughs> over the years, I think maybe I, it's hard to always, it's hard to gauge these things. Two has finally gotten its just dessert. Like, it's, it's, people think two is better than three now, I think in general. And it is. It's a way better movie than mm-hmm. three is. Uh, three is fine. Back to the Future 2 has all those, you know, has all those things. I think as we approached 2015, it got more and more popular because of the, the things that it got right and the things that it got wrong and, and things that were, it was almost close yeah. to getting, you know, whatever. Anyway. Yeah. No, I hear you. Uh, Let's just talk about Back to the Future 2. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Special episode of the Bond podcast, Back to the Future 2. I, I will say real quick on Back to the Future 2, I do like Back to the Future 2 better than 3, but I also like 3 better now than I did, I think, when I was younger, mm. weirdly. But but it's just, they're very different movies. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, so this finished, so we're talking about License to Kill again. This finished, I said, uh, uh, 36. It made close to a million less than Fletch Lives, and it made about 3 million more than Lean on Me. I didn't know Lean on Me made that much money. Mm. Um, mm. But I guess that's not that much money. But I mean, I still, I, I guess I just, I, I guess that was kind of a thing when it came out. Yeah. So production. So we've got John Glenn is back. This is his fifth, fifth, right? Fifth. Yeah. Fifth and final Bond film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he directed all the 80s Bond films with the exception of Never Say Never Again, which is technically not canon. So mm-hmm. Richard Maybaum is back. Uh, this will be his final uh, credit. Yeah. Uh, he so there's not another Bond film, which we'll talk about this on the next episode, but there's not another Bond film for six years after this. So uh, Richard Maybaum dies in 1991. Uh, Maurice Binder, uh, the the title designer, uh, he also dies in 91. So mm-hmm. this is his last 
a Bond film. And then Albert R. Broccoli, uh, this is his last producing credit. He doesn't die till 96, but I guess he was not in good health. And, yeah. Uh, he was not one of the producers, I guess, listed on GoldenEye, uh, or at least wasn't involved Yeah. Uh, as much. Uh, so he dies in 96. So unfortunately, all three of those that we've been talking about a lot, uh, it's kind of weird. <laughs> and like I believe people are like going also, away. I believe also, and I don't think it has anything to do with health or a death or anything like that. This is yeah. the last John Barry score. I mean, actually, this he, the last John Barry score was the previous one. Michael Kamen yeah. takes over he, for John he, Barry. Yeah, he was not able. Uh, I didn't. I don't know when Barry died, but I, he health reasons was why he couldn't mm-hmm. do this one. And they even uh, they even. They even tried to give a little more time to him because he couldn't fly. Like he was, he had just had surgery or something and he couldn't fly. Mm -hmm. And so they were going to give him, and this is before like, I mean, now this wouldn't be an issue, right? You would just do the score at your house or whatever. Then you would, you would send it. You know, 1989, it's a little different. Mm -hmm. But uh, so if you couldn't fly somewhere, you basically, you couldn't work. So yeah, it's terrible. But uh, Cayman, Cayman, uh, Cayman's a good uh, composer though Die Hard Love Lethal Michael Weapon Kamen. Lethal Weapon is going to come up so much in this podcast so if you do not like Lethal Weapon I apologize <laughs> but it has it factors into this movie it really it's does it's crazy it's just, it really does so we got all those guys back for their final their final bout a couple of the actors are back for their final bout too not because of health but because of just everything changes after mm-hmm. this License to Kill is the first Bond film that doesn't use a title of Ian and Fleming's story. We will not be talking about anything. Uh, we will not have our third segment this week because there's really not much to talk about. The original title for the film was actually License Revoked. Yep. But uh, test audience, U.S. test audiences are fucking dumb. I don't I, know why we do this they, anymore. They, they, it seems like they're just like getting people who, I don't know what it is. I don't get it. And and they give them so much power, especially back in the day, test audiences. Yeah. Um, why are we like trusting the opinions of people who don't know what the word revoked means as that's what i don't i don't get but yeah i i saw this in the uh, behind the scenes john glenn said yeah i had to change it because americans didn't know what revoked meant and and uh and he's like i find that really hard to believe but anyway yeah and the the people thought it they kept thinking of driver's license like that's what was in their mind yeah. and so they did they didn't want it to be called that. I don't think License Revoked is a great title, so I don't care, but it's just weird why they changed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So that had to happen. So now it's License to Kill. Uh, the plot is mostly original. Uh, they do take the shark stuff is from Live and Let Die for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, Felix get a, gets attacked by a shark in Live and Let Die. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there's a short story called The Hildebrand Rarity, uh, that's where the Milton Crest character uh, uh, comes from. Mm-hmm. So just a couple. Oh, and then they also, they compared this movie. They were very influenced by Yojimbo. Yeah. Um, the the idea that like Bond is able to defeat the bad guy, but he doesn't really have to physically fight him for the most part. He, he, he sows seeds of distrust uh, amongst the, the other people in the organization. Yeah. And then... So that's kind of how he destroys. Uh, he kind of brings them down that way because he's he the Sanchez. Uh, is it Sanchez? That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Yep, it's Franz Sanchez. Yeah, he can't trust anybody. 
uh, anymore. So that's kind of how. So that's kind of the Yojimbo stuff. I, I I would never think of Yojimbo when I thought of this movie, though. But so this was also this was the first Bond film to be shot entirely outside of the UK. That was uh, for uh, budgetary reasons, yeah. taxes, or there was something, a yeah. there was some sort of a film tax act of some sort passed yes, in there the was. UK. It was in eighty five, I believe. Uh, something like that. That we were it actually affected more movies than just this one yeah um, uh, i think we talked about it a little bit when yeah. we talked about living daylight and too, so it so. was uh, apparently like uh really expensive to make stuff in the uk and so the only thing that happened with this movie uh mm-hmm. was that they edited it and uh, i think there was yeah. something else that they did post-production uh, but they didn't yeah, shoot it anything was, uh sound like if they had to re-record any of the sound they did that at pinewood yeah uh but it was mostly just touch-up work after the movie had been shot. They actually used, uh, it was this uh, studio in Mexico, a real popular studio in Mexico called Estudios Churubusco. Mm, uh, mm. I, I'm going to go with that's my pronunciation. I mm, apologize mm. to anyone who got offended by that. And then, uh, so that's where all the interiors, for the most part, mm. were shot. And they also shot some uh, in the U.S. But U.S. and Mexico was, for the most part, that was that was the production. So they, they, they came to North America and they hung out. Mm-hmm. When Broccoli and Wilson, uh, Michael G. Wilson, along with Richard Maybaum, when they were trying to figure out where they were going with this one, they wanted to try to do something a little different where they hadn't shot before. They went to China. Yep. Uh, they got permission from the Chinese government. They uh, did. I don't think they. I don't know if they did scouting, but they they went to China and they tried to figure out uh, some stuff to do. But then uh, they decided. Probably, I think cost had something to do with it. I also read yeah. uh, at a couple places the Last Emperor factored in to oh. why they didn't shoot in China. Hmm. Uh, they thought that it had removed some of the novelty <laughs> from film in China. I don't know. I, I I would I think it's just the cost, and especially with yeah uh, the behind the scenes where they said that they were scouting China and they said it just didn't work yeah. out. Uh, apparently, Peter Lamont, who's been the production designer since Ken Adam left back in yeah. uh, uh, um, after Moonraker. Peter Lamont said, like, uh, asked they went into Broccoli's office, and Broccoli's like, "We're going to shoot this in Mexico City," and and uh and yeah. that's that basically is he basically said we're, we're shooting there or no movie is basically what it came down to yeah well and the the outline that they were doing for that story which would have included uh there'd be a fight scene along the great wall there was uh, a fight scene dealing with the uh the terracotta hmm. i believe that's how you pronounce it hmm. army uh but there were some things in there that broccoli was concerned uh the chinese government would not let them do so yeah i it felt like it was he thought it was going to be more of a pain in the ass and he just thought it would be easier to go shoot somewhere else and they changed the story obviously Mm because they had to and then so that's why they decided to do like the the drug cartel and everything they created this fictional they create this fictional it's like the isthmus yeah uh, like the republic of isthmus it's this you know totally fake place but that's where uh the robert davi character is like uh he's basically like noriega i mean that's who he's that's yeah. who he's patterned after. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, uh, there, it's Noriega and it's uh, Pablo Escobar, sort of a combination yeah, yeah. of uh, uh, where drug lords were sort of like, uh, I guess, controlling the world or ruling the world yeah. at the time. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I mean, like most Bond films, this is pretty topical. Uh, you know, they were they were kind of going at stuff that was pretty topical, especially in the eighties. Uh, you know, Miami Vice and stuff like that was also dealing with a lot of that. 
Uh, if you if you don't know much about Noriega or uh, Escobar, I would uh, just Google it. I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole, so mm-hmm. <laughs> not, but I'll just give you the. But that's who basically that character is based on. Uh, also, they had an issue. They uh, I don't know how anybody turns a movie around in two years because there always seems to be all kinds of shit happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the WGA goes on strike, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Wilson and Maybaum they had not written the script yet. They had just they had done an outline, but they hadn't actually written the script. So. That caused a problem. Well, Maybaum said, I just can't, I can't possibly write while my, you know, yeah. uh, union guys are on strike. Oh, and exactly. Michael yeah. Wilson, who I think is sort of like wearing a, several hats in this. He's a mm-hmm. producer. He's and a so, producer. So he can just go ahead and start writing if he wants to, and it's not a big deal. So he, he just, I think most of this probably is him writing the script yeah. and then maybe Maybaum comes in with some other things later after the strike's over. But yeah, a little bit there, there isn't a lot talked about him. I, I don't know. I think he was involved a lot early on. And then when the strike happened, he kind of got out. And I think he does come on later and help out a little bit, but they were having audition actors with old scripts. Uh, Carrie Lowell read from a view to a kill. Uh, for instance, the script was intentionally made darker. Uh, they thought that fit better with the way Dalton, uh, approach the role and we talked about that in the last episode where uh, him saying like the traditional bond stuff d- didn't work at yeah. all like i mean it was weird and it just didn't make any sense so you kind of don't really get any of that in this one mm-hmm. uh for, for the most part and then they also when they were talking about the script uh they they referenced yojimbo and a fistful of dollars which a fistful of dollars is basically yojimbo actually is an adaptation of a Dashiell Hammett novel called Red Harvest. And there's been a bunch of different takes on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fistful of Dollars with Clint Eastwood, Sergio Leone. That's a, that's another one. So those were, those were definitely influences. Uh, I already mentioned the Republic of Isthmus. That was a fictional place. And the, uh, the Sanchez character was supposed to be uh, based on General Noriega. Yeah. Uh, also the drug related revenge story. That was really common. That was really popular in action films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lethal Weapon <laughs> had that for instance. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2, both of which were huge hits in yep. the same year Living Daylights came out, and RoboCop, which also came out in 87. Mm-hmm. So yep. that's kind of where they were taking all that. And uh, yeah, this is Timothy Dalton's second appearance and his last. Uh, probably get into that a little more on the next episode. They, uh, it, I mean, they don't automatically stop working with Timothy Dalton. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that happens. Um, yeah. They do write another script for him. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like they wanted to get rid of him, but it was just after the performance of this and they didn't, they didn't really know what to do with Bond anymore. So unfortunately, this is his last appearance. I guess we will get into that with Goldeneye, but there was a, a big yeah. um, uh, rights issue with who, who, co- who owned the name Bond mm-hmm. and uh, everything. And, and um, you know, it's uh, MGM and I can't remember if there was like maybe Sony or somebody like that was in it. I don't remember. I don't remember who we'll, we'll know more, I guess when we get into golden eye, yeah. but, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, there was a huge rights issue that was going on. They were, mm-hmm. they were going to do Timothy Dalton, but, uh, it was just, uh, the way everything was going, it was impossible to tell when they could even come out with another movie. Yeah. That, and that ends up being kind of the main reason. Like, I think a lot of people say, well, license and kill didn't make enough money and they just, nobody liked him. That wasn't true, yeah. but, uh, it, it had more to do with other thing. And then just by the time they were actually able to make one, I guess it made more sense just to start fresh. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Carrie Lowell, who we've already mentioned, she plays, I, the, the, I guess the main female in this, uh, uh, I'd know her mostly from law and order. My <laughs> wife is a huge law and order yeah. fan. She was on that for like three or four seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I want to say she was right before. She's either right before or right after Jill Hennessy. I don't remember which, but mm-hmm. she's somewhere in that in that era. She was like the the eight the assistant district attorney or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lowell, uh, she was a little nervous doing this. She didn't really see herself as a glamour girl, and actually. It's really interesting to see her with long hair because you don't see typically she has short hair and yeah. everything she does. And that was a wig. Uh, and then they actually created a whole thing where she said, I got to go get my hair cut or something <laughs> just so just so she could go back to having yeah. her, just her normal hair, uh, which I thought was funny. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but when she shows up, it's weird. You're like, oh, that's Carrie Lowell. Now I now I, I see it now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the apparently the audition, uh, she was told this is a secret agent who likes to go out to bars or something. So she showed up <laughs> in her to her audition in a t shirt and jeans. Yep. And then so awesome. and then apparently somebody like maybe Timothy Dalton or somebody said, You need to get a better wardrobe, I guess, and then she came back in something like like you know yeah she says in in the bit behind the scenes she says more baba boom is what she says <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i guess i guess they they meant like the fancy bars yeah uh, that you yeah. Would find in the uk not the not the dives or whatever mm-hmm. uh i love that she showed up in a jeans and a t-shirt though. that's yeah. amazing it ma- makes me like her more mm-hmm. um robert davi uh D- so he it's robert is, davi da- that's right it is mm-hmm. i've said davi too a couple times already i apologize robert davi uh i knew him at this point uh goonies was mm-hmm. probably yeah. the main thing i knew him for he was mm-hmm. one of the tortelli brothers yeah or is it not tortelli is it fratelli fratelli, fratelli yeah. Right? yeah fratelli i think he was uh he plays frank i'm sorry franz sanchez mm-hmm. he is a i just call him sanchez because that's yep. what everybody seems to call him he is a drug lord in this latin america this republic of the isthmus or whatever davi considers himself a method actor i don't know that i've ever thought of him as a method actor but that's what he says he is so that's fine. yeah um he uh, did a lot of research on colombian drug cartels uh and he said he was he said the other thing he was trying to do was he wanted to make he decided to try to make sanchez a mirror image of james bond yeah the um the idea of uh was that i think he and timothy dalton dalton wanted to do it more like the fleming character uh bond and they went back and i guess read casino royale and fleming specifically mentions that the the villain and bond are mirror images of each other and everything. This is the only time I've ever heard of Robert Davi doing anything methody, but mm-hmm. who knows? But, but yeah, the, he apparently went around and like pretended like he was this drug lord uh, in real places and with the cast and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I read that. And so like he went in and did that type of thing, and people and and and, and people took him they took him uh took him to heart i guess they they really thought he yeah. was and there's an imdb trivia thing that says an actual drug lord kidnapped him at one point and just said i really liked your performance of this or whatever i don't know how true that shit is yeah, but that's, I, I saw that i couldn't get it from anywhere other sources so i yeah. just let it go but that's I think, hilarious I, I feel like that's probably bullshit but you know what it's <laughs> it's it, it's something to throw out there and i i and i i might might sound like i'm negative on davi i i i mean personally i am kind of because he's He's got some political views. Let's just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> He's pretty, pretty deep. Yeah, you can uh, you can go look that up if you feel like it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 
But uh, I've always liked him in movies. I mean, yeah. I, you know, he, he just never, I don't know. I'm trying to think after this, like he did Cops and Robertsons, which is not a good movie. But no. like, I, he just didn't do anything that great after this. But uh, he he's still he's still acting. So he pops up every now and he, then. I mean, he makes that he makes that Agent Johnson role. There's not very much to do with oh. that at all. And it's, he's completely memorable in Die Hard. He, uh, yeah, that probably is my favorite, uh, my favorite Davi, even though he's only. Oh, it, which also I will just go ahead and say that while we're talking about that, uh, Grant. Randell Bush yeah. uh, is in this movie. Oh yeah, uh, uh, he plays Hawkins. I don't think him and Davi have a scene together. There's, they 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 don't. Re- I mean, there there is a part. I think there is a section where um they're talking the the I can't remember the dude uh, who's talking to him. He's a guy who dies early on. Uh, the Everett McGill Killifer, uh when Killifer yeah, yeah, yeah. is doing oh, the interrogation. Um, that's when he, sh- that's when yeah. Brandel Bush shows up, uh, in the same scene with them. There's also another one in during the, the helicopter airplane sequence where they're kind of in the same scene together, but, uh, but, but nothing like what they are in Die Hard. So, and they're the, uh, but for anyone who doesn't know, we're talking about them because they are the FBI agents that show up later in Die Hard. They are Johnson and Johnson, right? Yep. Yep. Big Johnson, <laughs> little Johnson. <laughs> Uh, Talisa Soto is, uh, plays Lupe Lamora. Um, she plays, uh, I, I mean, at least at the beginning, she's, uh, she's Sanchez's, I guess, uh, lover, girlfriend, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this isn't like a, this isn't like a Grace Jones or Barbara Bach thing. Like she's actually a very nice person. She's, you know, she's just in a situation that she can't seem to get out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say right off the bat, I love Talisa Soto in this movie and, yeah. uh, I, she's really good. And, she has such better chemistry with Dalton than Lowell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of it's a weird thing and I guess like they felt like Bond and Lowell had to end up together but like it he had it made more sense for him to end up with her but whatever. Yeah. I, I mean especially the way the story arc is it makes a lot more way more sense. Yeah. Uh, now I I wasn't obviously I wasn't in the room when this what happened but everything I read was that she she was one of 12 women that was auditioning or that was made the like the final, you know, cut or whatever yeah and apparently robert davi said he would kill for her so that's why they that's why they picked her uh which makes me think of that story with uh 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 what oh god what james spader uh doing secretary when he saw uh when he saw uh maggie gillenhall he said yeah let's hire her i can definitely see myself spanking her yeah Uh, that's kind of (laughs) that's kind of what that made me think of yeah um yeah um yeah, Robert Davi playing James Bond, and apparently he was like really good at at playing James Bond in that audition. Like they like he he pulled it off. So, um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, Talisa Soto. Here's another little uh, like um, this is the pre union basically, but mm-hmm. uh, Talisa Soto and a well known character actor, Carrie Hiro- Hiroyuki uh, Tagawa. Yep. Uh, are both in Mortal Kombat um, I for- later on. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had him listed, but yeah, no, that's right. I forgot she was in it. She's also uh, she was in the uh, the po- the famous movie Spy Hard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Spy Hard. Yep. Did yeah? I mean, has it done a ton? She she uh, looks like her last credit was 2009, so I guess she got out of acting. But uh, yeah, she's she's quite good in this. I think she so. ended up marrying Benjamin Bratt. Oh, that actually sounds right. I think you're right. Which is a Law and Order connection. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, she well, she and she was married to Costas Mandalore before that. So <laughs> Costas Mandalore, wow, amazing. <laughs> That's the guy from Saw, right? Picket yeah, fences. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of, right? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. She's Just been married sure. to uh, Benjamin Bratt since 2002. Yeah, yeah. They're celebrating 21 years. Mm-hmm. Good for them. Yeah. Uh, I like Benjamin Bratt. They seem like that'd be, that's probably a fun couple. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Zerb, uh, probably most known to a lot of people of classic film fans, Cool Hand Luke. I don't know for a fact, but I'm going to guess it's Zerby or Zerbe. Zer- um, yeah, you're probably right. But let's go with Zerby. Yeah. I have no idea. I haven't heard, I haven't heard his name ever pronounced, but mm-hmm. I know him from the Matrix re- Reloaded and stuff like that. Yeah, I have that's- to, yeah, he's in Reloaded and Revolutions. He plays like a like the counselor it's like a council it's a counselor of some sort counselor so counselor yeah Mm -hmm. uh he's also i remember this because i think it's funny he's in this episode of murder hero and the episode's okay but his character's name is matt matthews oh yeah (laughs) and it's only spelled what's funny is matt is only spelled with one t (laughs) (laughs) of course it is yeah, uh, another guy who's been in a million things. I, you know, if you go to the IMDb, he's got 115 credits. So it's like, you know, he. Oh, yeah. You've seen him he's in, in a time. lot of things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the same goes for uh, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa because that guy, oh, yeah. that guy, I think I looked at, let's see, IMDb says he's got 160 something maybe acting. Uh, yeah, he's 138 in, uh, credits. Yeah, he's in John Carpenter's Vampires. He's in uh, Mortal Kombat, obviously, we already mentioned. Uh, the Phantom, which is a movie movie i like yep. i feel like more than most people but uh uh from like the mid 90s mm-hmm. yeah rising sun yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> i forgot about rising sun yeah uh which i think we should forget about rising sun i think maybe that's okay maybe uh, <laughs> so also playing uh one of the other uh, villains i guess not a villain at first but becomes a villain is uh the great everett mcgill which if you're a twin peaks fan i think you probably are well aware of who he is he did he hasn't done a whole lot though uh mm. but what he has done i've really enjoyed he was in twin peaks he was in the the twin peaks the return i think it was called on showtime mm-hmm. uh he's in the people under the stairs the late west craven one of his uh movies from the early 90s also, he's in Under Siege 2, which I'm a huge yeah. fan of. I don't know that everybody is, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm well, not, I say, but did, I haven't seen it in forever, so... Well, one thing I love about it, I am going to go on... A, I do kind of want to talk about this for a second, because the one thing about Under Siege 2 that I do love is that it has the best, like, team of fucking bad guys, because it's Everett McGill, Peter Green, who is, uh, you know, Usual yep. Suspects, and um, The Mask. Pulp Fiction. Pulp, Pulp Fiction, fiction mask, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Kilpatrick, uh, who's in a mm. bunch of action movies, always plays like a bad guy. You'd recognize him if you saw him. He's in Death Warrant. He's in Eraser, uh, Minority Report, Last Man Standing, stuff like that. Uh, Jonathan Banks, of course, Beverly Hills Cop, uh, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. Uh, and then they're led by Eric Bogosian, which is... <laughs> yeah, of all people, yeah. <laughs> but anyways... Highly recommend check it out if you've never seen it or you thought it would be stupid. I just just for the bad guys alone, it's kind of it's it's a lot of fun. But anyways, uh, yeah, he's in this. He plays like a actually I don't he's is he like a lawyer or something? Like he's he's works with the what, CIA because he's Killifer. Yeah, he's a CIA guy. He's uh, he's just a bought off CIA guy. Yeah, yeah. He, he and and at first I think he actually is fine, but then when he gets offered two million dollars, he's like, "Fuck you guys." No, I and, think- 
I don't know that I maybe maybe that's what that's saying. I thought he was bought off from the beginning, but maybe oh, he might have been. He might have been. I might maybe, have read the scene maybe wrong. Robert Dobby's uh, uh, offer because it is two million dollars. Yeah. Uh, after he after he first offers a million, he goes to two million, and then later he says he owes him two million. So I I know what you're saying. I and I could have misread that scene, but but also I got to say I love Rob uh, the Robert Dobby thing with this though is I like when Everett McGill leaves. And then maybe it's Anthony Zerby that's like, we should just, why don't we just kill him? Right. And then Davi's like, because my word means more to me than money. And mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I just think about movies today where everybody gets double crossed. And I, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> like it, it actually mm-hmm. like stood out to me that like, you know, the bad guy would actually do that, which I guess does play into like this whole thing where Dalton is able to make him distrust people and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then we've also got a uh, Frank, Mer- Frank McRae, uh, he plays yeah. a character aptly named Sharky. Uh, you'll never guess how he dies. Uh- <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and he's a what? He's a descendant of uh, the other Sharky from uh, Doctor No, right? Yes, correct. He's he's a son. Yes, and he plays I, Frank McRae was all over like the eighties and nineties, but yeah, I mostly remember him as the shouting captain. And uh, I think he does it in Loaded Weapon One as well. But he's also yeah, the last he action does. hero. Is last the one I really remember sure. it. The first movie I think of him on is Batteries Not Included for some reason. Um, oh, but... seeing that? Man, I haven't seen that since I was a kid. I don't remember that very well at all. Somebody was talking about that the other day on another podcast I was listening to. I was like, I got to watch mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's not great, but it's just, I don't know. It seems interesting. Isn't it like set like in a nursing home or something? I don't remember where it's <laughs> set. I just I just remember that watching that movie in theaters, and I remember him for some reason in that movie, but... But, uh, but yeah, he's a great but, yeller. But probably best, probably best known for that last action here. Yeah, performance. But he's really good. Like he yells really well, and mm-hmm. uh, you don't really see that in this movie, unfortunately. But uh, no. But he, yeah, he chews out Schwarzenegger, and I, I swear he plays that same type of character in Loaded Weapon One. But I really I haven't, haven't seen, seen Loaded that. Weapon One in forever. But that probably is right. <laughs> the only thing I remember Loaded Weapon One is Tim Curry is like one of the bad guys and. Some like somebody shows up and then somebody says he came and then Tim Curry says that's personal. It's the only thing yeah. I remember out of that fucking movie. Mm-hmm. It's it dumbest, sounds about right for, it's for that movie. And I can't ever find that. I've tried to find that for outtakes and I can never find mm. it. <laughs> so maybe I'm making it up. Um, Benicio del Toro, who I think we might have already mentioned him, but yeah, he's in the very young Benicio del Toro. Yeah, he's uh, like 21. Dario, he looks like a kid. Mm hmm. And he looks Basically like he's like is a kid. 16 or something, but I know he's like yeah. probably in his 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he plays Dario. He's one of Davi's, uh, he's one of Davi's uh, henchmen. Uh, doesn't get to be in it enough, but it's really interesting watching him because you can see like what he's going to become. Like, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I love seeing people like when they're younger in these performances after like I realize who they are and stuff. It's, that's always fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Benicio del Toro might be the most most famous person in this movie, but at the time was not uh, not famous right. at all. You, yeah, you have to be right because I mean, I mean, I, people know Timothy Dalton, but like he's not like a Hollywood like he's never been like a big studio headliner outside no. of Bond, like Benicio has. Yeah, um, Benicio del Toro ended ends up winning an Oscar uh, in for Traffic. And, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's sort of an above the line star where a lot of the people here, are character actors yeah. or whatever And Dalton. Yeah. Dalton after this, I don't know if there's anything that he does that's uh, known not outside of hot stuff. fuzz. Yeah. I mean, he shows up in things. He did that, uh, beautician and the beast. 
Are you, why are you, why are you missing that movie? Right. <laughs> You're right. Well, how could I have forgotten that? That's amazing. That, that yes. was a Fran Drescher film, though. That was not. A, yeah. That was not a a, a, a Timothy Dalton movie. Uh, but yeah, Benicio del Toro. Well, I will talk. Maybe the second most famous person in this movie is Wayne Newton. Yeah. Uh, he plays Professor Joe Butcher, uh, who I remember always think he's like like it's kind of like a religious kind of thing. But I don't even know if that's really what it is. But he is like somebody that's. He kind of yeah, has like it's a, like cult. a meditation yes. guru. Yeah, medita- yeah, yeah. But uh, he he's in the movie because he actually wrote a letter uh, to uh, I think Broccoli. Uh, it was somebody, Broccoli Wilson, somebody, and said he really wanted to be in a Bond film, and they were like, sure, you know. Mm-hmm. And he does kind yep. of feel like weirdly added to it. Like I mean, I get that he's kind of he helps them. Like uh, I guess they funnel money through him and stuff. I mean, that's kind of the impression yeah. I got. But. Uh, but I mean, you know, I, he's not needed. Like he's absolutely, if he wasn't in this movie, you wouldn't be like, man, this movie's missing something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's running some sort of compound where behind yeah. the scenes, they're putting the drugs in the gasoline. I really mm-hmm. do think, I really oh, do think, right. um, I really do think Davi's, uh, drug operation is way too complex. It is. Um, it, it it like I don't think he has to do half the things that he does in this no. movie to make to make the money that he's making. So I don't think anyway. So. It's it's your it's if there's anything about Bond movies that have stayed consistent, even though they've gotten more and more gritty and real. <laughs> like you know, like you wouldn't know what I mean. They're, they yeah. It's not it's not like people in their secret underground layers anymore and all that. Yeah. Doing these weird like over the top uh take over the world things. Yeah. But a lot of times their their operation, the criminal operation, is just there's just too many moving parts going on with way it. too many. So it's still kept that consistency. So and anyway. And well and just for the fact there's way too many people that know what's going on. Like I don't think Yeah. I don't think you'd want to have that many people involved just because the more people you get involved, the more likely you are to get caught, really. Right. Uh, I would think. I mean, I've never yeah. I've never run a successful drug cartel. Run a couple unsuccessful ones, never run a successful one. Right, right, right. Um, Definitely does. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> I think it, yeah, I don't think it works here. And he's just, Davi's just, we'll get into the plot of it yeah. later. But well, it they, just, and they know too much. Like, they, they know so, and I think it's because of how stupidly overcomplicated the whole thing. But you're right. The Bond movie's definitely never leave that either there's still stuff mm-hmm. of that like in the craig movies that never mm-hmm. goes away because it's a bond thing right everything's got to be over the top and you know yeah but you are correct uh we already mentioned grand hill bush uh he plays hawkins uh which we mentioned we, the main reason we mentioned him is because he was the johnson to davies johnson in uh yeah. in die hard but we kind of talked about him, but he's uh he stays one of the good guys, doesn't he? Or does he turn too? Now I'm trying. No, to he's a good There's... guy. He's a yeah. That's what he's I a thought. good guy. The, the 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 movie makes him a semi antagonist, although he's not really an antagonist. Um, where they they hold him, they they're like, you can't do your this operation where you're doing this revenge scheme. We're not going to let you do yeah. this revenge thing while yeah, you're here. That's right. That's and, right. And so they they hold him for M at the Hemingway house. Is it Hemingway or is it Falk? Yeah, it is. No, it's Hemingway's house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they hold him at the Hemingway house and everything for M to tell him that he's you know he's going to get his license yeah. to kill revoked and everything. So that's really I mean there's really a only one moment where he's where you would consider him an antagonist, but just because yeah. he's trying to prevent Bond from doing his revenge thing. 
but yeah, that's he's right. a good guy. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was thinking, though. I knew there was some there, but that's right. He's kind of more on, he's helping M out as opposed to, you know, helping Bond. Uh, we yeah. already mentioned Kerry Hiroko Togawa, so I won't mention him again. The, uh, before we get into the repeat repeat people, uh, Pedro Armendariz Jr., Armendariz Jr., maybe? Uh, he plays the president of Isthmus. The main reason I bring him up is because his dad played Ali Karambe in From Russia With Love. Oh, that's so, right. That's right. I yeah. thought that name sounded familiar. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, the senior. Senior played him. So, same yep. name. Yep. Uh, so returning, so we actually have we have a returning Felix. We have our like first ever returning Felix, yep. and it's weird too because it's not like he was in Living Daylights. Uh, David Hedison was in Live and Let Die. Uh, mm-hmm. Was very surprised when he got the call because he's never thought he would be in a Bond film again. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and also because is it is it Live and Let Die where they take the shark thing from? I can't remember because yes. the shark. Yes, thing, it is. Yeah, the shark thing actually comes from the book. Interesting connections between yeah. for the David Hedison version yeah. of this is that he was in Live and Let Die. They did not have that shark attack in the movie, but he they they did take the shark attack from that uh, yeah. book and, and put it into back. this. Yep. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, and I and that almost has to be on purpose. I mean, if it's not, that's weird as hell. Well, and just like the, I don't know if the, I don't know if it was on purpose either, and this is something I had never considered before. Yeah. Uh, although I I don't think it really has anything to do with much, but uh, you know they keep up the storyline of Bond losing his wife on his wedding day. Uh, that story that mm-hmm. that reference That's uh, true. is it pops up in this, and that and you know and this is the Timothy Dalton version. Uh, one of the things that I ran across was like this is interesting because. He was supposed to be the Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, where yes, that happens. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so that that's one of the interesting connects. I didn't think there about that either, as well. But th- it also happens with the Roger Moore Bond. They talk that's about true. His no, that's there. true because a lot and a lot of people that were we've gone through this. A lot of people that were tested for Bond end up coming and playing like villains and stuff. So, mm-hmm. our side characters. So that's not that uncommon, but it's still super coincidental the way the David Hedison kind of, yeah. Uh, uh, thing goes. I will mention before I get into like Q and stuff. Uh, his wife, who you mentioned, or his newlywed wife in this movie, is played by uh, Priscilla Barnes. Priscilla Barnes, mm-hmm. uh, who I know from Three's Company. Uh, she oh, was. Yeah. I don't know if she was the first one to replace Suzanne Summers, but she was in it pretty early on. I know she was one of them, uh, mm-hmm. one of the new roommates when they when after Suzanne Summers left. Yeah. Uh, I feel like she was kind of more the early, the eight, because like when I would have actually been watching Three's Company, like when it was on, it would have had to have been like early 80s. So I think maybe she was in that uh, variation. Yeah, but it was 81, know. 84, according to oh, okay. IMDb. Yeah, so she, yeah, so there you go. Uh, mm-hmm. She's in that. Uh, and she's not in this movie very long, which I'm sure we'll talk about because it's, yep. uh, it's, it's wild. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn is back as Q. Has quite a bit to do here, more than usual. Maybe View to a Kill was kind of the last one. I mean, Kind of on that par, maybe a little more to do than View to a Kill. Even he's he's around mm-hmm. a lot more than he normally is. Yeah, this is his biggest uh, role ever, I believe. If I, I think if, so. If I read uh, his uh, his biggest uh, Q, uh, his biggest amount of time in a Bond movie. Yeah, that, I mean, it seems like because he just kept popping up, and I kept man, Q's really in this one a lot. Like it wasn't something mm-hmm. I remembered. I think it's just more noticeable because we've been watching these so close together. Um, and Q, and Desmond Llewellyn will re, will return. He stays on throughout the uh, the Brosnan films. I think he makes yes. it. I think he's in he's in Die Another Day. I think so. I think that's yeah. His last he gets one. all the way to there. I think. Yeah, 
that's a that's a really I I can't wait to talk about that movie for many reasons. But that's a really like creepy scene because he like he like goes down in the floor and it's like I hope he says something like very very like just like you know hope I get to see you again or something like that. Then the actor dies like a year yeah. later or something. It was right. really weird. Yeah, because I think he was dead by the time the movie got released, if I remember correctly. Mm. Uh, but we'll talk about that later uh, in a few weeks. Um, uh, Robert Brown is back. This is his last. Uh, this is his last performance as Elm. Uh, he is about the same. Like easily, the, apparently, he's the most forgettable Elm because we forgot they even had an Elm in the eighties. So, uh, not that, yeah. not that there's anything well, wrong. There's but he's never fine. <laughs> realize this though. There is uh, in the first in the Conneries. Yeah. And uh, he, there's always a scene where the, he goes into headquarters, yeah. and there's a scene with him, mm-hmm. and and uh, and then later on, it starts becoming less and less about mm-hmm. going into headquarters. It's a, it's a, he's always on a mission already, or um, you know, he gets his he gets his information mm-hmm. just through other means, whatever. Yeah. He doesn't have to go into the office, so. Um, that's one thing counting against him as his time as M is just that he's just kind of, he's, he just kind of pops up in like a very small scene and then he's gone. So mm-hmm. he doesn't get a chance to shine. So exactly, exactly. And, uh, Carolyn bliss is back as money penny. This is just, that's her, this is her second and her final, um, performance as money penny. They change all that up when uh except for q they change everybody else up when we get the dalton when we get Isn't to it samantha some someone named samantha bond who ends up being money penny in the next ones uh, i think something that's like right that. yeah it's, it's, it's like what a great what a great name yeah. to be able to get into it's the like, james bond movie it's like the actors in friday the 13th part five whose whose real name is debbie sue Voorhees. <laughs> that's amazing i'm almost positive that's the only reason she was cast too i mean i well there might have been another reason too but i that's you know friday Mm -hmm. 80s friday the 13th movies look it up i'm not getting into that um Mm. yeah so that's really it for the cast uh music wise uh eric clapton was approached to write and perform Mm. uh the song for this movie i i wish and i wish that was one we actually had gotten recorded so we could actually hear it but uh i I don't think it ever was it was considered i mean they did they wrote it or something because they decided to turn it down because they thought it was too gritty which is really weird because this movie is gritty and yeah and we'll we'll talk about that i guess when we talk about like our opinions on the song but it's it's odd uh Mm -hmm. gladys knight ends up singing it uh Gladys Knight ends up performing it. Uh, it's it's kind of loosely based on the horn line uh, from Goldfinger, or, yep. or not loosely. I mean, I think it's full on based on it, that. That's, yeah, I think they even got. I think there was even some uh, litigation on this too, possibly. Um, I did not see that actually. Um, I don't. I don't know. I, th- I think I ran across that that there was there was a a, a question as to whether it was uh, lifted. So there probably um, was. There's a good reason why I kind of like this song too, because that that opening is what I really dug about mm-hmm. Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I like this song. Yeah, I, I well, yeah, I mean, I'll give that away. I like this song quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's it's a weird juxtaposition with the film itself. It's it's odd, but we'll talk about that. Um, yeah. The end credits also. Oh, this was a Gladys Knight's first top ten hit in in, in the UK uh, mm. since the late seventies. Uh, wow. Yeah, I know. That's unfair, man. Gladys Knight in her prime, mm-hmm. man. She's freaking amazing. I mean, she's still a great singer. But uh, yeah. the end credits featured a song, which is, and this might be the first time the end credits featured a song that's actually more popular 
Uh, maybe not necessarily the Patty, La- which is this Patty Lavelle's version of "If You Asked Me To." Yeah. Uh, Celine Dion also does a version of this. You know, a little while later, that's mm-hmm. that, I think that's a pretty big hit. I mean, yeah, Celine Dion's had a ton of hits. I think that was one of them. I mean, I remember hearing it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always forget it's in this movie. I always yeah. forget. Yeah, me too. John Barry was. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but John Barry wasn't able to score. Uh, he had health issues. Uh, this is well before you could just email somebody your score or whatever. Well, yep. I don't think they email, but whatever they do now. Uh, he couldn't get on a plane. He wasn't well enough to fly. Uh, so mm. they couldn't get him to the recording. So interestingly enough, they used Michael Kamen. Uh, Michael Kamen, really well known for doing like scores for action movies. He did Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. The two, you know, Lethal Weapon was two years before this. Die Hard was one year before this. Uh, it, you know, so he's that was a good pick, I think. Yeah, uh, were you saying this was the last John Barry? Oh, it has to be right because he passes away, doesn't he? Yeah, John John Barry's last one was the I guess the Living Daylights. Yeah, that's what I meant. One. I'm sorry. Yeah, like yeah, he he, yeah, and, he was. I, I guess this is the last time he's approached because, uh, well, he did yeah. live till 2011. But yeah, no, this is his. That was his last one. You are correct. Yeah, and then yeah, Cayman um, comes along, and yeah, he fresh off of Die Hard, which has a has a really well like yeah. really good score, and you can hear some of the tones of Die Hard in this. Uh, when you're when you're watching this as well and they're but different Michael I mean, great choice die hard is yeah die hard has there's some similar tones definitely die hard and lethal weapon are fairly lethal weapons got like all the sacks like that's always yeah, what yeah, i remember yeah. about lethal weapon mm-hmm. is that you know that's oh, a yeah. terrible impression of a sax sorry guys. oh it's that's how it goes <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and honestly that's what my, Meredith and my wife and i always talk about this with current music uh there's not enough sax there just isn't nah, we, it's very we true need to go back to the sax guys mm-hmm uh, horns too. I like horns. Let's do all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, reception, uh, reviews were kind of all over the place. This was like, not really, uni- this was definitely not universally loved, but nobody, most people just kind of said it was meh. Like it was just kind of mediocre mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, Hillary Mantel and the spectator, uh, she wrote, it's a very noisy film. There is a weary and repetitive note to the frenzy. The sex is low key and off screen, but there is a smirking perverse undertow which makes the film more disagreeable than a slasher movie. I thought that was interesting. Uh, and not to mm. reflect my opinion on the film, but uh, not that far off. Uh, mm. But yeah, most people just kind of found it mediocre. Dalton was praised more than I had remembered. Like a lot of people were kind of like saying, you know, yeah, Dalton's good. We just don't like the story, basically. Uh, the darker mm-hmm. tone didn't jive well with most people. Uh, and we also kind of talked about the summer of 89, uh, how you had like Batman, Indiana Jones, and The Last Crusade. Lethal Weapon 2. So this got compared to those. Whether that's fair or not, that's what happened. And it just, a lot of people said it wasn't as like lively and as energetic as like these other mm-hmm. action movies. Um, action movie had really changed in like two years. Like between 87 and 89, like with like, because 87, you've got Predator, you've got Lethal Weapon, you've got Robocop. And mm-hmm. those just kind of set the tone for what's going to come. And, you know, so I think, I don't, I just don't think a lot of people wanted to go watch Bond. Uh, yeah. but, uh, Roger Ebert loved it. Uh, he gave it three and a half stars, mostly noting the stunt work. And he also said it was one of his favorite recent bonds. I mean, stunt work is generally always yeah. good in these movies. Yeah. I mean, to consider what they, what they did and invented and, uh, Absolutely. whatever this one, this one has one of the most spectacular stunts they've ever done in it. So, um, May not seem you want like to go ahead it, talk about that. Which one are you talking about? 
the the one where the uh, the helicopter catches up to uh, Davi's plane and oh, of course, like, of course, it. yeah. The th- this is something that when you watch it with today's eyes, you're thinking, oh, they just did something on a mm-hmm. green screen or something mm-hmm. like that. No. They actually shot this thing, um, and they had to do a lot of. Uh, obviously, the plane when they when they tie the plane to the helicopter, that's mm-hmm. not a real plane. Yeah. But when they're doing the stunt where the plane's in the air, the guy has to get on the plane while it's in the air. And from what I understand, not only that, they have to get off of the plane immediately once they get on because it would stall the plane if if they stayed on it too long. Yeah. So for like sure. it's they had so the so the stuntman playing Bond has to climb onto the plane and then they have to cut. Guy has to get <laughs> back onto the helicopter or else it stalls the plane, the plane crashes. So uh crazy. you know a lot of stuff like that but yeah the, that tying the plane thing i remember when we were doing the sins video for this i was like oh i'm gonna definitely send this shit for being fake and then yeah they had to do a couple of fake things but that's a real stunt that's just an yeah. insane insane stunt it's that crazy they, they pull off yeah you wonder if tom cruise just watches that on repeat and he's like probably I can does do better. it's <laughs> yeah probably does yeah mm-hmm. i was actually weirdly enough i did i mean they're very different but when I was watching Mission Impossible Fallout in the theater, I I did think about License to Kill because so that's obviously stuck in my head, you know, mm. uh, as mm-hmm. far as, you know, just interesting plane stunts. I mean, the thing in Fallout, it's crazier and there's a lot more going on. Yeah. But oh, yeah, but uh, but it did just kind of make me think of that. Um, retrospective reviews are a little better. It still doesn't really like it's still kind of like doesn't ever get like too highly regarded. Uh, but uh a lot of people mostly now talk about how, you know, they just think it sucks that we didn't get another Dalton film. And, uh, mm-hmm. which is said, we'll talk about that on the next episode. I mean, they, this, they do try to do another Dalton film. Like it's not like he's fired after this, but yeah, there's a lot going on. I mean, on the time and, ran out on him. Uh, that's yeah, what, that's what it ended up. The time there's six ran out. years between films. I the has to be the longest gap has to be. It uh, is. Cause I think even with the crack, I think the most they ever went was like three or four years. And yeah, that, some of that had to do with COVID and all that kind of stuff when they couldn't release. So like, it's not like they wanted to, Oh, you mean long. like no time to die's release date got pushed back because yeah, of COVID. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So I think yeah, it, yeah. But it, it still wasn't that, six years. Even that wasn't six years. Yeah. And the, the, the distance between Brosnan and Craig was not six years. Yeah, it's four. Um, it's just four yeah, years. So, so this not is the white four. So this is, this is definitely the biggest gap. Um, I don't remember, if we brought this up but the the uh finale where they're in that on those those desert roads yeah we did not um, yeah talk about this yeah on the in the finale where they're in that these desert roads and everything there's like all these like really dangerous turns of course they're using Mm -hmm. all these trucks yeah uh on these things now that area of california that they shot that in that was a shutdown uh like actual highway system mm-hmm. that where a lot of people had died because there's so many like it's such i mean it's such an impossible uh drive and you know there's i don't think there's any like real safety precautions there's not, yeah. like, not a lot of guardrail type stuff going on there uh but they they quickly thought that that area was like cursed or haunted or whatever because there were so many things that so many weird things that was going on, like there was a stunt with uh, with Dalton where he's supposed to get into a truck and there's supposed to be like nothing 
uh, yeah. around him when he gets in the truck and starts driving. And yet when he got in the truck and started driving off, like a sudden truck was just there yeah. out of nowhere. Um, uh, John Glenn swears up and down that he saw figures standing close to like some of the stuff and he would go to he thought they were like like people who bystanders or whatever mm-hmm. and he had to go shoo them away but he would go shoo them away and they'd just kind of disappear or something <laughs> like that a, some weird stories come out of this and uh the other thing is they there's a big huge explosion with one of these trucks and i think it's the one of the ones where he pushes it down and of course also when he pushes these trucks down, that's another thing that almost like nearly like killed Dalton or whatever on the yeah, Dalton, like, Dalton had a rough time. Um, but um, but in the explosion that happens, there's a there's a guy taking still photographs during all of this, mm-hmm. and the one of the still photographs has this shot that looks like you have the you have the big explosion of flames and everything, but you also have this thing that looks like a giant claw coming down it looks like a demon's claw coming out of mm-hmm. it and apparently a bunch of people saw the uh dailies on this and there's like four or five different angles of this explosion and they could not find the part where there's that demon's claw anywhere it's just something that this still photographer caught and i'm going to That's assume crazy. i'm going to assume because i do not believe in this type of shit no, yeah, um, me either. I'm going to assume that the still photographer, his his speed of camera and what yeah. got captured on film is different from what they got on the moving film. So there's no, there's probably no way to find that demon yeah. claw in that in that in that moving footage. But anyway, uh, the the whole finale apparently was like uh, they were a little worried about it. Nothing happened. That's the a uh, great thing obviously nothing actually happened no consequential thing happened like yeah. you hear it's not there wasn't some sort of like poltergeist or exorcist <laughs> yeah there wasn't some poltergeist or exorcist type uh, yeah, situation yeah, yeah. going on here but but uh but they did do they did believe that that uh, the place that they shot that was uh, cursed or haunted or that could, well that could make an interesting episode of our our buddies over there with cursed films if they could do a they could do a third season. Of course, I'm calling them our yeah. buddies. We we talked to them once, but uh, yeah, you know, we talked to them. They're they our know buddies. Us. We we have them on speed dial, just like we're good friends with Dolph Lundgren. Uh, yep, <laughs> and Rennie Harlan, and Rennie Harlan. That's true. Mm-hmm. God, mm-hmm. Rennie Harlan needs to make a Dolph Lundgren movie. Like that needs to yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, no, I'm glad you brought that up. I did not put that down. I read a little bit about that and I saw some stuff, but uh, yeah. And see, I think too. Like, I mean, they're basically they're in the desert. I mean, so like. I mean, you see things, right? Like, you know, you hear people like seeing mirages and stuff like that. I don't know. Like, I just feel like shadows were playing tricks and all that kind of stuff. Mm, Yeah, yeah. That's the way I feel about it. I mean, but that's, Um, but you know, for people that believe in that, which is perfectly fine. uh, mm -hmm. If it, if it ever actually ends up being true, you guys will be uh, better off than we are. Yep, absolutely. We'll get killed before we believe it's true. You'll be prepared and we will not. (laughs) We'll be like, there's no way that's a ghost coming at me with an axe. Uh, Chris is the first one to die in that horror movie. Yep. (laughs) Oh, I would definitely be the first one to die in a slasher film. Like it, which Mm -hmm. is crazy because I've seen enough of them, but I would just flip out. So there's no way. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the I first one is the one that's always uh, the first one is always going to be the most unaware one. Then after that, you should be well, maybe you I'll should be, be like second. on guard. Yeah, maybe so. 
yeah, so that's the that's all the fun behind the scenes stuff. Next, we're going to talk about the movie, like what we thought of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which we've already talked about a little bit, but haven't gotten to too much detail. So we'll do that now in a segment we like to call Review to a Kill. I've got you in my sights. Get the fuck out of my sight before I demolish you. What we've got here is failure to communicate. There's no need to shout. I'm not shouting. Why don't you stop your whining and get on with it? I've heard this shit before. We're going to give you our thoughts on whatever film we are discussing this week. This week, we are discussing 1989's The Last Bond Film of the 80s, the last Timothy Dalton film, the last film directed by John Glenn and all kinds of things uh license to kill uh which we haven't even talked about the fact that it's fucking spelled l-i-c-e-n-c-e which i did research on this this is a british thing but what Mm -hmm. i could get confused about is apparently if you're using i I might get this wrong i think it's if you're using it as a noun it is it's it's the e-n-c-e and if Mm -hmm. you're using it as a verb it's e-n-s-e but like i I don't know. That's still weird to me. Here, because here in the states, it's E N S E. No yeah, matter always. what, like we never do yeah. the E N C E. In fact, Microsoft Word tells me that's not even a word. So, mm-hmm. yep, it's a British misspelling. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. <laughs> Trust Microsoft Word over the UK. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> oh yeah. man, uh, here we go. So, in License to Kill, a vengeful, a very vengeful James Bond goes rogue to infiltrate and take down the organization of a drug lord who has murdered his friend's new wife and left him near death. And I wish the movie sometimes was that simple, but as Chris said, it's a little overcomplicated. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much what happens. Uh, yep. I, I I don't know. I've, I've been really excited to talk about this one with you because I feel like we might not be as far apart as I thought we were, but please let me know what you think of License to Kill. Uh, I mean, just like, um, a lot of the, the, a lot of, just like the other Dalton, you know, the living daylights, mm-hmm. I think this is better than I remember it being, mm-hmm. uh, this, it, and I've discussed this before, either this is the first one I saw in theaters or living daylights, but I definitely saw this in theaters. I yeah. definitely did see this in a theater. Um, and, and all these years I'm, I have, I've been, uh, I, I still, anytime this movie comes up, I think of Robert Davi. Because mm-hmm. Robert Davi's uh, performance and sort of his um, interpretation of his character has always been great for me. I think he's one of the best villains mm-hmm. uh, that that uh, Bond has to offer, actually. Um, uh, he may not be super memorable for a lot when you have all these over-the-top guys. You have the Blofelds of the world and everything. Uh, but... I, I really do like his interpretation of this character and he's very memorable. Uh, I, I'll never forget, obviously, because I was 12 years old when I saw this, when um, when uh, Milton Crest gets into that uh, decompression tank and oh they blow gosh. up and blow it, which is the, one of the, probably the grossest scene in a Bond ever, but uh, they had to even cut, uh, they had to cut it down, I think, uh, because it was so gruesome uh, when they first uh, did it. But um, I just remember that line where they, because there's all that money that's in the thing, and and the guy's like, what do you want to, What do you want us to do with the money? And he goes, launder it is what he <laughs> says, uh, which is a great, uh, it's a great Bond, uh, you know, pun uh, in, in, this, in this thing. But I just remember Davi so much in this, and I love his character just because, 
um, because he really does value loyalty over money in this. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if you try to steal his money, it's not I mean, it's not about the money. It's about you going against him more mm-hmm. than anything, and that's fairly consistent all the way through the movie. There's not like a there's a point where like he he just he really doesn't. There's money like getting wasted left and right in this movie. It's crazy how many times there's money just like <laughs> just floating away and he's just oh, like, ah, yeah. screw it. I don't care about that. I mean, that's how much money he's making too. I mean, he doesn't yeah. He doesn't care about it. But um so so that's always appealed to me. Um the thing that I don't like about License to Kill is how influenced it is by all the eighties action movies mm-hmm. that came before it. And uh and obviously the grandfather of them all, Dirty Harry, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, which comes into the, it comes into play here. Um, you know, this is such an '80s story. The guy who's selling drugs, the mm-hmm. drug lord, the revenge story. There were so many of these revenge stories, especially like with Seagal and Jean Claude Van Damme, yeah. and and uh, and you know, and Lethal Weapon movies, of course, are all about it. Um, so, well, you know, yeah, it, and like people that were like agencies and stuff, like people going rogue, but you know, people not following their boss's yeah. orders. That was very much an 80s, uh, was a huge staple. part of the 80s. So, yeah, so the so you know, there over the years, Bond has been influenced by a lot of movies that have been going on at the time, they make their own uh, particular version of whatever's popular at the time, and unfortunately, what's popular at the time is this cop thriller uh convention and they put Mm -hmm. it into this one and um and that's what's always been my sticking point with this is that it's just not a spy film it's a revenge film it's a um you know it's it 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 doesn't have the same kind of like fun that i have with bond discovering things about the operation and being able to move on to the next thing and when he does discover things about this operation i'm like god this just seems like stupidly complicated Mm -hmm. especially when you consider that davi's character is uh he's got all the cops in his pocket basically he's uh there's really not much of a reason to go this like do all this secret stuff that back mm-hmm. in the background where he's like got the um he's got the drugs uh going from one boat to another then it goes to like whoever buys it or whatever goes to an airplane the mm-hmm. airplane goes flies off um and the way he's disguising the drugs when they go overseas or whatever where it's like let's put this cocaine and gasoline and it covered the gasoline will cover it up and we can deliver it via mm-hmm. gasoline and then then there's a process that we use to to get the cocaine out of the out of the gasoline at the end of it and then by the end of it you can sell the gas if you want but like um and and, and his big deal in this one is that he's trying to get the the japanese mark now I'm pretty sure this this is where I'm going to get in trouble. I'm pretty sure these are all Japanese uh, buyers that he's trying to sell to. I think so. But there's a point where Talisa Soto says the Chinese, mm-hmm. which That's I true. don't 
think that's right though unless they, and of course they use the very wrong term orientals all the of way course. through this oh yeah so it's hard i think they're i think they're just basically saying those guys are asians don't worry about it um but i think it's japan uh but they say chinese so i don't know um so yeah they're trying to <laughs> dominate this other part of the market and uh and uh and everything so anyway um the you know the villain's operation just seems way too complicated the the and oh and 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 getting and on top of that you get you know you get the wayne newton character like gets his buy like the the way people buy it is they call in to this mm-hmm. live show yeah. like it's you know and they and they like <laughs> all right this is how we this is how much we want but we're going to disguise that on live TV by saying <laughs> they're donating this amount of money. And the, and when they say they're donating this amount of money, that means this is how much they're yeah. buying and at what price. Yeah. And that's what the, the one guy is so excited about. They're like, oh, my God, they, they went for the new price. I knew it. You know, and and uh, it just seems this just seems just stupidly complicated to sell drugs. Um, I agree. So anyway, that that's that's that can also be fun. But like I just in the end. I think that's what drags this movie down for me is that it is such a product of the of its 80s brethren that I don't like it as much as a as a classic Bond film but it mm-hmm. is probably better than most of, you have five movies in the 80s this is either two or three probably I mean maybe like Octopussy might be the top one I think Octopussy might be the top one of the I, 80s. I guess I could talk about License to Kill is, is the best one in the 80s, in my opinion. I don't, I don't even, oh, yeah? and I don't even know that it's close. I, Octopussy is fun, but like, I've just always. Oh, speaking, going back real quick, though, I just want to say that another 80s staple, speaking of Anthony Zerby's death, the, the Crest death, uh, we really like to blow heads up. Like, that was a. Flatter <laughs> effects uh, became like a huge thing, mostly in horror mm-hmm. films, but eventually it kind of made its way into into uh into action films and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh yeah people love that like that back of the head just like building and oh, it was crazy yeah uh those effects creep me out too but uh yeah that is easily the most that has to be the most violent death <laughs> like at least easily. what we see yeah uh, like if, if you if we saw some of the things that that yeah. actually happen i would say that yeah. um yeah the 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 one that i think comes close to this is the Yafit Kato death. Oh yeah, of Dark. course. But that just looks so uh, bad. Like the Anthony Zerby one. That's it, a silly one. Yeah, Anthony Zerby one. I mean, kind of it, but it's also like the scene is just so much better. I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, a- 80s. Like, I just and I just don't think like I don't think Bond. I just don't think they ever really figured out how to exist in the 80s. Like, I don't think they mm-hmm. ever really kind of like got there. Like, because. It's like you had a couple of movies that were kind of almost there, like with Octopussy. And even like For Your Eyes Only, I mean, its biggest thing is that it's just kind of dull. But there's some interesting stuff in there. I think it's interesting mm-hmm. to be right. I think it's For Your Eyes Only, where we were talking about how some of that reminded us of like, it kind of looked like almost like it was a canon film or something. And mm-hmm. uh, License to Kill definitely feels that way. Well, License to Kill feels like it's either like Joel Silver produced it or like, uh, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer because I do mm-hmm. think like uh, Lethal Weapon oh and also in 87 you had Beverly Hills Cop 2 I think Lethal Weapon and Beverly Hills Cop 2 kind of kind of paved the way for what action movies were going to be a lot like for like the next 10 years and then I think mm-hmm. I've heard you say Michael Bay 
and um, uh, uh, la la la, uh, freaking Roland Emmerich. I, I think mm-hmm. I've heard you mention before that like they kind of set uh, in place like what the action movies would be like after like ninety five, yeah, uh, or whatever for like the next like ten years, and then now of course it's MCU and comic books and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But uh, I do like this action era. This is probably my maybe maybe, maybe I don't know if it's my favorite action era, but like eighty six, eighty seven to like ninety five, uh, mm-hmm. there's just a shit ton of movies in that period that I just I just love. Like those are some of my favorite mm-hmm. action movies. You know, Speed's yeah. in there, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I think this one fits right in there. I I get it. I get that why people get a little turned off because it is unlike just about every what well, it really is. It's unlike. I don't think there's a Bond film like this one really. At least the tone of it. Uh, is very different. Uh, but I do think this tone fits Dalton better. Uh, I like Dalton so much more in this one than I did in Living Daylights. He's not having to give like all the one-liners and stuff like they were trying to have him do in Living Daylights. And we talked about that where it just sounded silly when he would say stuff yep. like Bond, James Bond. And in this one, he's just super serious because I will say this, the one thing about this movie, like I would, like we've talked about this, Goldfinger and Spy Who Loved Me are 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 in that like top tier of what we've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. I think this is in that next tier. I don't think this quite gets mm-hmm. to that level. And I think part of it is because there are some there is some stuff in this that just feels mean spirited more than mm-hmm. like it's dark, but it kind of crosses that line. Uh, Priscilla Barnes' death, uh, not that you see a ton, but it's just weird to me that she is so like just brutally murdered, and Felix yeah. lives. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes no and, sense to me. And doesn't seem that upset. Like when, they, when he goes and sees Felix at the end, they're like laughing and shit. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like your wife just died like three days ago, man. I, like I don't think I understand that at all. Like <laughs> I understand maybe you want to uh, punish Felix Leiter in a different way or whatever, but like it's inconsistent with everything that happens. And there's no there's no reason to. There's no reason to like let him live either because the whole no. point of this is revenge. So it's not like I guess they felt they felt like if they killed Felix Leiter off, they couldn't just come back with a Felix Leiter in the next movie. I don't know. Like it's not like Felix Leiter has ever I been. I know. Would a, anyone an have cared? Nobody <laughs> would have cared. Had and so I never understood that. And so anyway, yeah. The, the, so yeah, I understand wanting to punish him, but like. Oh, I'm just gonna kill your wife, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna have a shark eat part of you, and then I'm gonna take you out, and then and like and then put that note like uh, you know he ate something that disagreed with him or yeah. whatever, yeah, or he got eaten by someone who something that disagreed with him or whatever. Talk about something um, that felt diehard. God, that yeah, felt. Yeah. Now I've got a machine gun. Ho ho. I mean, it felt exactly right. like that. So yeah, I, 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 that's another thing that's weird to me about about the plot of this movie is yeah. like, let's kill the wife, but Felix Leiter, he can still live for some reason, and, and uh, we're going to be joking around by the end of the movie. We're just going to be like, yep. remember that time, mm-hmm. right? Oh God. Um, and then the other scene that always stands out to me is when he kills Everett McGill. Uh, Everett McGill mm-hmm. uh, is. He finds out that he's he's well he's trying to kill them because he's gone you know he's against them now, and he's got that suitcase of money and he like falls back and so like this uh, this door opens or whatever and underneath him there's water because we have sharks again obviously we've yep. already mentioned that oh yeah uh, so he's hanging over this like water full of sharks and he offers to give Bond half of his money 
I don't remember exactly what Bond says, but Bond picks up the suitcase and he says something like, you can keep it. And then he just throws the suitcase on top of him so he falls down and gets eaten by sharks. Yeah. I know Bond is a killer. Like, I'm not dumb. Like, I know Bond mm-hmm. gets assigned to kill people. And I know he yeah. has to kill people in self-defense. This just felt like straight-up murder. Like, this just yeah. felt like, like, like he just didn't give a shit about anything. Because, right. I mean, they had him dead. I mean, there's no way. I mean, they could have pulled him up and they could have, like, cuffed him to something or whatever. I mean, they could have done something with him. He definitely didn't have to kill him. And I don't know, it just, it feels very unbond, I guess, to me. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's almost like the Roger Moore pushing the, uh, the guy off the mountain. Oh, that's a good point. It's exactly like that. Yeah. And Um, Roger Moore said, like, that's just not something Bond would do. And I don't think this is something that Bond would do. I mean, I don't know. It's weird. And let's not forget, too, how he gets into this, uh, place in the, you know, it gets here in the first place. He goes in to uh, investigate the aquarium or the, the yeah. whatever, the, the place where they're doing the scientific study. Of course, they're also, this is, this is I, I really, honestly, let, I'm just going to take a step back here for a second. I really want to know from the moment they get the drugs to the time it gets sold to somebody on the streets, what the fuck is going on in here? Because he, <laughs> like the in this in this case, the drugs are being like packed in with a whole bunch of like maggots or something like that. Yeah, like he finds like drugs in this pile mm-hmm. of maggots, and it's like or bait or something it's something how many different how many different ways are these drugs getting ported (laughs) all over the country um and it just seems like just anything that bond runs into there's drugs in it like i'm surprised he doesn't like he like everywhere he goes like he's like like shoots the wall and drugs come out of it that's what that's how 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 this is but reaches uh, in his pocket he's like where did this cocaine come from exactly god damn it um uh, so like, uh, yeah. So he he gets he goes into this, and Anthony Zerby's there. Milton Crest uh, yeah. tells him, "Oh, we do this stuff for uh, you know for research and everything." And and Bond's like, "Uh huh, uh huh, okay, cool, cool." And then he sees Felix's like like fucking like wedding day flower, yeah. whatever the, the uh, corsage or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting in the trash, basically <laughs> like on the floor. And that's how he's, and you know. I, I I I get it, but like, you really didn't have you really didn't have to put that detail in there for Bond to go in there that night. He knew he knew that place was being used for the stuff, but uh, but that's the reason why he goes in there at night and tries to puts his hands in all those maggots at the yeah, in, in the oh, the one scene with a really inept security guard. That actually might be grosser than Cress's head exploding. Is help reach in those maggots or bait or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, uh, another scene actually that was, I thought was weird just cause I, I, and these are all over eighties movies, but I really hate the scene where like the henchman like creepily hits on the, the main bad guy's girlfriend. Yeah. Like in this case, yeah. Anthony Zerby is drunk and he walks into Lisa Soto's room and mm-hmm. if, if he doesn't get called away, I don't know. He might attempt to like have this sex. Another, I have no idea. This is another thing that's really fucking stupid. Now this is really yeah. fucking stupid in this movie. Okay. So <laughs> Milton Crest goes in to try to like, like, you know, um, whatever he's trying to do with Lupe there in that scene, yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's trying to fuck her, but I don't know if he's going to, he does get interrupted. Thank God. Yes. But he gets interrupted by this, by the sea captain guy. Who's mm-hmm. like, 
we have something big on the radar, sir. You better come take a look at this. <laughs> and they come, he goes into the to the bridge to see what it is. And all it is, now it is Bond underneath a Stingray like costume yeah, thing yeah. or whatever. But why was that important enough for the captain <laughs> to go over there and tell him, oh, we got something big. You better come look at this. <laughs> general aquatic sea life that we always see in the water all the time it's yeah. it's basically the movie's way of saying we didn't want to go any farther with that scene with her, him and talisa so. soto i think and that's I mean, their way but it's so dumb yeah. it's so dumb anyway well and he knows like of course i guess he's drunk because i was gonna say like this this movie opens up on davi killing a guy that is sleeping with talisa soto and that's like yeah. the reason he kills the guy and anthony right. i mean crest has to know about that like yeah i don't know maybe he was just gonna take a shot and then if she had said no he would have wandered out i have no idea but i'm glad that right. scene doesn't go any further it's a stupid scene and then like you said come look at this stingray which i think he says it's a, a manatee is what is that yeah, it's Chris a manatee says. i don't know what the fuck yeah it is. he goes it's a manatee like what the fuck did you call me to look at this for <laughs> but uh it's funny also i didn't i forgot about this this is another thing that adds to the darkness of this movie is after davi kills that dude that's sleeping with his girlfriend he mm -hmm. whips her Yes. And um and uh Davi in the behind the scenes uh said something like he's like you do a scene like that and you don't think anybody uh takes that in any other way than what it is or whatever but apparently he got letters from all over the world from people who love the S&M aspect of wow. of him whipping her and it's like he's like <laughs> you know like the, what the fuck that wasn't what that scene was about <laughs> anyway yeah those scenes are, I always love hearing behind the scenes on scenes like that like I remember in Rob Roy like where the Tim Roth uh, like rapes uh, uh, mm -hmm. Jessica Lang uh, Jessica Lang and then they they were talking about it because it was on this table and mm -hmm. like the table kept moving and stuff and then they would start laughing so they had to like <laughs> they had to film that they had to keep filming it take all these cuts and it was just it was like this horrible scene but you know they're in the background just like they're acting so you know they're yeah. just they're making it funny i guess i don't know anyways uh yeah. yeah that's crazy i'm not shocked people said that though especially in 1989 yeah. uh he's really good in this though um i i guess i should go back cuz we i feel like now i've started acting like i hate it i i i really really do like this movie a lot it's one of my mm -hmm. favorites uh, it's probably like in that top five or six when all is said and done. I don't know. We'll go through the other ones. Maybe all of a sudden I'm just going to love Tomorrow Never Dies. Who knows? Uh, but uh, I've always enjoyed this one. This was my second in the theater, but still Dalton is kind of my Bond, I guess, because that's not my favorite, but I'm just saying that's who I knew as Bond. And I've, yeah. I've seen this movie more times than most of the Bond films. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to watch it a lot back then, and it's one I go back to every few years. Uh, as an adult, there are things in it. It's not perfect. That's why it, it doesn't, and not that Goldfinger and Spy Who Loved Me are perfect, but I don't think it quite gets to that level because it does have this mean spiritedness to it. The plot should be a lot simpler than it is, like you're saying. Like, I have no problem with them just stripping this down and making this a straight revenge film. But then, like you said, they've still got to have this crazy way to, like, ship the drugs and how they get the money in. And you've got this Wayne mm -hmm. Newton compound and all this stuff, and it just doesn't seem needed. Uh, yeah. I love most of all the performances. Uh, Davi is great. I, I I hate that he never really got like like I, I don't I can't remember what all he did after this. Like I know he does like well, that stupid cops and Robertsons. He's like the bad well, guy he's in, in that. Showgirls. That's the he showgirls, is showgirls is probably yeah. The showgirls has probably got one of the all time. I'm not gonna repeat it here, but it's got one of the all time. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Like great lines in a bad movie, and it's him that delivers yeah. it. So. 
Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Uh, that should have gotten him way more gigs. I don't know why it didn't. It should uh, have. It should have. I can't. I can't believe I forgot about Showgirls. I remembered Cops and Robertsons, but I yes. did not remember. I did not remember mm-hmm. Showgirls. Cops and Robertsons, the great Chevy Chase, uh, Jack Palance vehicle. Uh, yes, but not the one with Jonathan <laughs> Taylor Thomas. That was a different one. I always get. I would. I know there's That's... one where Chevy Chase and Jonathan Taylor Thomas are in a movie, but it's not that one. It's like the one. I'd be Man of the House. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah, man, it's Man of the House, yeah. Because uh, then there was Jesus. another Man of the House with Tommy Lee Jones yes. and the cheerleaders <laughs> later on. So, yeah, this that was the first one. Yeah, I've sadly never seen either of those. but uh, I saw I'm the sure Tommy that, Lee Jones one. Yeah, it was 05, right? I think it was. It was. I think it think was. It was, it was a really, yeah, one of, the many, one of the many great bad movies of 2005. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, I've not seen that. Uh, but yeah, so Dobby did really get. I, I really, I, he's so good in this. He's so good in Die Hard. He's really good in this. I'm sure if I thought, like, I talked a little bit about Maniac Cop two when we were talking about him. That's not a great movie mm-hmm. by D Beans, but it's like, it's really weird that a movie called Maniac Cop two is as good as it is. So it probably kind of elevates it a little bit <laughs> for me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Because you're like, why? There's no way Maniac Cop two is gonna be bad, gonna be good. And then mm-hmm. you watch it and you're like, that's all right. Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah no he just never really got i don't know i, I he, he could have been like one of the big villains and stuff but then they just started bringing back like other actors like dennis hopper got to come back and you know uh ed harris they were using people like that for villains so uh davi got kind of left behind which is i don't know, whatever uh he's really good in this though and when i think of bond villains i think of him i he's one of the ones that pops up in my head so i agree mm-hmm. with all that you were saying um I mentioned when we talked about her, I love Talisa Soto in this. Um, yeah. I, I kind of wish Bond ended up with her. Uh, Carrie Lowell is fine. It's it's funny to me. I think I have differing, I think I have a different view of the two women in this movie than you do, but uh, I think you're right that he probably should end up with Talisa Soto, but yes. I, I, I like Carrie Lowell a no, I lot. Yeah. I, I, I think, like, I feel like we say this a lot with, like, the, like, the good girl or whatever the the main like the female that he's with mm-hmm. or he gets t- he gets paired up with they're they're not usually the best written uh, i think carrie lowell yeah. carrie lowell is a very good actress so that helps obviously mm-hmm. i don't think there's a lot on the page there for her but she does make it better than it probably has any right to be i just don't think they have chemistry yeah they don't have chemistry she for me it's just an individual thing for me like i don't think i care whether or not she gets together with bond by the end of the movie i think talisa soto's clearly the one that she probably should end up with but uh but carrie lowell all the way through this i love i love all that stuff in the in the bar at the beginning when she gets introduced uh in the in the movie for the first time there's something about carrie lowell in this that i was like man what is it that i'm i love about her so much in this and i just i really dig her performance she's a she's an actual agent that does actual agent stuff yeah not like doesn't seem token really doesn't seem like a token thing which is what they did you know, even with the spy who loved me, it seemed like they were kind of given a given a sort of a token oh, thing. Oh yeah, this feels like them trying to redo the Barbara Bach character better. Like that, yeah. that definitely. And I, I think it, and, and Carrie Lowell, like I said, very good actor, mm-hmm. much better. I'd probably a much better actor than Talisa Soto. Talisa Soto, I haven't seen her in a lot of stuff though, but yeah. she's definitely a better actor than Barbara Bach. No offense to Barbara Bach, love you, love you very right. much. Glad, glad you and Ringo are in love and all that stuff but um if barbara box listened to this i would that would be amazing oh my um, god but uh 
but no, she's good. I would I was gonna say, like, I just I feel like the chemistry, I, I just the Talisa Soto character, is it Lupe? It's just it's yeah, interesting Lupe. because we have seen so many movies in a row where the the bad guy's like girlfriend or whatever is like a, basically another henchman. Uh, mm-hmm. Like with Barbara Carrera and with Grace Jones, so it was actually kind of nice seeing someone that's actually like not a bad person. Like doesn't really necessarily mm-hmm. want to do anything illegal. She just got caught up in this situation that she can't seem to get out of. Like she can't get away from him. Um, yeah. So that's interesting to me. But I do agree. The Carrie Lowell, and this is another reason why I really like this movie, especially compared to the other ones in the '80s. The Carrie Lowell character, like I said, some of the writing of her character is, you know, especially once she starts falling for Bond. I think that's where I start losing interest in her character. That's where it, that's where it starts. Yes. yeah, definitely. But at the beginning, like you said, it's cool because she is an agent. She does know what the fuck she's doing. She doesn't give a shit about him. You know, she's just yeah. doing her job. She even doesn't she even get irritated that. He he's not her secretary or something like yeah. that. Is that this? She yeah. says that. Yeah. And uh, there's even a point where he's he's like, I don't need you anymore. And then she goes off and does her own little undercover yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right after that, so uh, it, I just really di- I just dig her no, character a lot. Uh, and so yeah, I I it, 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 that's not the point you're making though. You're the point is they yeah. don't have the the great chemistry. Yeah, that's and all. And by I'm the saying. end by the end of it, he goes after her like she's yeah. like the the one or something, which is weird because uh i know they don't know that there's not going to be any more daltons after this but like it yeah like i don't know why they bother with these like <laughs> i'm really in love with you at the end of this because you're never going to see that girl again oh, ever they do that so much like at the end of diamonds are forever and yeah. uh oh it's it's so dumb and i mean yeah. almost all of them actually in kind of that way but they but this one seems a little more like oh maybe she'll come back but she's not yeah. i mean you know she even if they made another dalton i doubt she maybe she would have i don't know yeah, i knows? mean they did start bringing back uh, like in the in the Craig ones, they kind of do actually start doing some of that, uh, yeah. which doesn't always work out great. But we'll talk about that when yeah. we get there. But um, but yeah, I agree with you. This ending feels very false. Like it ends on a false note, and uh, and then it goes right into that Patty Labelle song, which is a perfectly mm-hmm. fine song. But it's just like the tone of this movie was a one eighty <laughs> from that ending, yeah. and now yes, I'm going it's... into fucking if you ask me to, which is like. You like one of the most beautiful written songs ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's like it doesn't fit in this movie like at, at all. all. No, no, at all. Like maybe like Spy mm-hmm. Who Loved Me or something, it would have been perfect. But like in this movie, it doesn't fit yeah, at all. Yeah, they, just, they did so find the weird. polar opposite of what movie you just saw. They found yeah. the polar opposite of it. it yeah. They try to make it like a typical '80s like romantic drama comedy ending mm-hmm. uh, after they've had this insanely dark and gritty like drug movie for the first hour and 45 minutes and then Mm -hmm. it's like she gets upset because he's talking to lisa soto she doesn't realize that he's wishing her well with her because i guess she's gonna marry the president now or something or she's with the president and Mm -hmm. she doesn't realize that's what he's doing and then and then he goes and finds her and she she's like oh you you know that yeah it's it's pretty much it's like the end of overboard like, have you ever seen yeah. Overboard? No. <laughs> That's all this is. <laughs> also, don't that, watch Overboard. <laughs> right. Talk about a problematic movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I really dig this movie. I Like I said, the, the tonal shifts with the romance don't really set well with me, but I like I like Benicio. We already talked about him a little bit. He's not in it enough. This yeah. was only his second movie. He was in a Big Top Pee Wee the year before. So this was oh, his, yeah, Big Top He was like Pee-wee. the dog wow. boy or something like that. 
Out uh, of that. I did. I saw Big Top Pee Wee in theaters. I do not remember Benicio del Toro in that. I, I don't. I don't I really know. I just. I didn't I know was, who he was. Look, yeah, yeah. When I looked up his uh, his acting, I just saw that that was the movie before it. But I haven't seen that movie since 1988, so I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I like the supporting cast that we talked about. I, re- you know, I like uh, Frank McRae as much as he's not in it that long, but he's good. Mm-hmm. Once again, the weird tradition of people who help Bond are always going to die. For whatever reason, there's a formula they follow, and they're like, well, whoever helps Bond has to die, because I guess that's how they insert drama and action into the movie, I guess, because if you have somebody who isn't going to die like Bond, you got to have somebody who has the potential to die. It's got to be what it is, because they all die. Yeah, it's like we have to have a kill count. Like It's like we don't have to, actually. His death doesn't make any sense in this movie either, by the way. He gets eaten by because, a shark, though, right? Because uh, sharky? Yeah, I get Yeah, well, because they, the, Benicio or somebody says something like, what, you know, that, what a way to go or something about his name. I mean, there's some stupid comment I, made. I don't know. Anyway, the, 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 he's, Bond sees him outside the window being uh, driven in by the boat or whatever, and he's, yes. like, hanging there. Yeah. And, like... They they found him like I don't understand honestly I don't understand how they knew that he was working with Bond because yeah I don't I don't uh, either they, they, it just it it's just it's a death that comes out of nowhere it's not like some of these where you're like oh okay that's someone that's clearly in a place that they shouldn't be and they could die if they hang out there long enough Sharky's just out in the middle of the water I'm assuming like mm-hmm. he's in a boat just hanging out and Bond has already gone like he's underwater he's yeah. being uh. Uh, he's got that manatee costume on or whatever the fuck. <laughs> uh, there's no reason th- th- that they would go out there and see him on a boat and go, oh, you must have been working with Bond, and then they kill him because, like, you know, it's, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I know. I agree. That is a weird, that is a very, very weird scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I mean, I, the thing, I really like this movie, but I don't know that I have a whole lot else to say. I mean, I just, I, I like the, I like the pace of it. I like the, the structure of it. Like, I think it just moves really well. Like it's quick, mm-hmm. even though it's two hours, it just, it speeds through all this stuff. And it, it, and I think that's something, some of the earlier Bond films in the eighties kind of felt a little more convoluted, not convoluted, but like structured oddly. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one just felt more like a, like what a, like a natural, had a more natural feel to the, to the flow of it, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know. I just, I, I've always really enjoyed this one. And I mean, obviously the older I get, I, you know, and like you said, knowing women better, just having a better perspective on the world. Obviously there are scenes in this, which don't hit me the same way, mm-hmm. uh, as they would have like when I was a kid, which is yeah. a good thing. But, uh, but I still overall, I just, I just think it's, I like how it's different. I like how it kind of has that eighties action feel to it. I know that's something you were, and I think that's what a lot of people are turned off by. That's become my like, cause that, cause I've always been kind of confused why this one isn't liked more than it is, but I get that. Like if that's not, if you don't want that in a bond movie or you don't like that kind of action movie, which I know you're not Mm -hmm. saying that, uh, but it is interesting to me, but it is interesting to me too, because like I said, I feel like people didn't go see this because they were out watching stuff like Lethal Weapon 2 and they had seen like, you know, Lethal Weapon and Robocop and all this stuff before the year, Die Hard. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, I don't want to go watch a Bond movie. Like that just seems old. But, but oddly enough, this Bond movie was actually trying to be like those movies. So yeah. I don't know. And I, and I mean, I'm sure it got a lot more eyes on it once it hit like home video and stuff. But, mm-hmm. and, and I do see people talk about it higher than like, I do, I do see, I have talked to people that they have it up as high as I do 
or around there, but most people would not like put this like in their top 10 or anything if they were to rank mm-hmm. Bond and that's fine, but I don't know. It's in mine. So, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we just got our rankings left because we're not, we don't need to do a, uh, a thing about the book because this is not really based on much of anything other than they took snippets here and there. So we are going to do our rankings. We are going to rank films in five different categories. Our scale will be based on something that Bond holds dear and nearer to his heart, as long as they are shaken and not stirred, and that would be martinis. So for each category, we will rank from one to five martinis, five being the best damn liquid that has ever passed your lips, and one being the well liquor you had to settle for or were too drunk to care that night. So the overall, the story, the overall feeling just toward the movie. Yeah, so the story itself, a lot of good, a lot of bad, and uh, in the end, I have to give the story a three. Um, so it, you know, there's a lot of good elements to it. Again, I think Davi sort of elevates this movie and yeah. uh, I, I think everything else around it's kind of ridiculous. Um, it, there, there are enough things that I like about it that I, I don't think it's trash and then there's mm-hmm. enough trash in it that I don't think it's great. So I have to go right there in the middle there for yeah, it. three. I, I get that. I'm not going five. I mean, I love this, but I can't quite put it on that level with like Goldfinger and Spy Who Loved Me. So I'm going to give it a four. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, the Bond, the performance, I, I think he's better in this than he was in Living Daylights. I really do. I, do I think he's, I think he's way better in this than he was in Living Daylights. I just, I, I love that they didn't have him say the dumb lines. I He mm-hmm. has a couple of like cracks, but they make a little more sense in the context of this film, I think. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. give him a four. I can't quite get to five with it, but uh, it's right he in that says, area. He says something really, I, I, I keep putting there it is, out of my head. He put something. Re- he says something really fucking stupid when that dude gets crashed through the wall at the factory at the end. He does um, say something dumb. It's really bad, and they, and it's and and you can tell. I can almost tell he didn't want to say it, but uh, <laughs> I guess they guess they threw it in there anyway. I and and God, I wish for this. He, this he tried to make podcast. it not work. He tried to yeah. get him to edit it out, probably. Yeah, I think so. I think so because it's just one of those one of those <laughs> things uh, where it's just so bad that. But uh, but yeah, the Bond. I'm gonna give him a three once again. He has not much. I mean, it's better. It's certainly better than the Living Daylights performance because, again, like you said, they're not making him do all the things that he they he did in that one. Yeah, and they they're really going along with his philosophy on Bond on this. So uh, I really do. Uh, I really do think he's he's good in it. I wish that we could have seen Dalton in a like a, a more. I don't know this. This movie has a lot of different other behind the scenes issues going on with it, and True. they probably couldn't make a better uh, uh, movie uh, with what they had. So I would have loved yeah. to see Dalton in a situation where they had the money and they had all the backing and whatever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm gonna give him a three on this one. And one of the things, actually, I will mention this too. I forgot to mention this in the main review, but one of the, you know, we have that whole thing where he basically quits. Uh, mm-hmm. He, you know, you know, your license to kill has been revoked or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, but it's weird because like I like that aspect of it, and I think that that could go in some interesting directions. But it kind of feels like about twenty minutes later, he's basically back in the British Secret Service because they're still kind of using him at that point. Like Q comes and helps him. So it's like that yeah. never really gets explored. Like he mm-hmm. doesn't really yeah. face any kind of consequences at all. Uh, and, and probably rightly so. Cause he ends up busting up a really huge drug cartel, you know, ring or whatever. 
But I don't know. Yeah. That's just. You, I that, mean, you I, can't have that. <laughs> you just can't. You can't have that. No, not at all. Uh, yeah. The villain. The villain, of course, that's Davi, which we've already raved about him. The henchman. I mean, that's Benicio. That's Anthony Zerbi. I mean, yeah, this is I great. I guess Wayne Newton. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Wayne Newton's just kind of a comic relief kind of guy, and this, yeah. and it's it's he's it's, in like two. He's scenes. fun. Yeah. Uh, so are you giving that a five? I'm giving this a five. It's a, a crazy enough to believe, but uh, I think if we did a ranking of all the villains that are in Bond history or whatever, I would put him very high. Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. And I, it's weird. He, Like you said, it's kind of weird he doesn't get talked about more, but I guess this movie just doesn't have the fan base uh, you know, that some of the other ones yeah, do. Yeah, it's the movie itself and it's the Dalton era that prevent yeah. him from being talked about more. And like you said, Benicio Del Toro is in, like Benicio mm-hmm. Del Toro just adds to it. Uh, Absolutely. I don't know if it's because we have the... Uh, the benefit of uh, retrospect as to what he would become later he does have a really weird line reading in this where he's like like uh we're gonna give you a really good honeymoon or something like that <laughs> yeah. um uh but uh but for the most part i do like his his work uh as the as that undervillain and he's pretty smart too he yeah. he's able to like uh, uh remember bond even though bond's wearing a mask uh, in that scene at the end, oh, that's right, yeah, doing the doing the uh, the drug and gasoline experiment, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know he he's he's a he's he's really good at that. So yeah, I I really enjoy the villains. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. The honeymoon thing it kind of reminds you of like Flippy for real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is kind of <laughs> like that. It really is. <laughs> Give me the keys, you fucking cocksucker. <laughs> uh, God, I love that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. There aren't really any gadgets in this, are there? I can't really think of anything. There, there are some. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the okay. Well, one Q of the does dumbest. Show up. Th- That's right. Go ahead. One of the dumbest things of all time, uh, and they've done this in movies. I don't know if this is the first one to do this, but the uh, gun that only works with your fingerprints. Oh it's yeah. A, it's a biometric yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Like yeah. Like, I understand what you're going for here, but how many times are you out there in the field and somebody is like, like, oh, I got the upper hand now. I got your gun and I can shoot you with it. That doesn't happen. That can't happen enough for you to, like, invest <laughs> money in a biometric gun. And we've seen that in movies, a lot of movies since. The last one I saw it in, I believe, was uh, like uh, The Fate of the Furious, maybe? Was it The Fate of the Furious maybe. where they end up going I, to Samoa and they have, all the villains oh. have biometric guns? Yes, like, yes, yes. So, you know, like, so, so that's that's one of the inventions in here. There's like some other thing that Carrie Lowell like acts, nearly kills everybody with when oh, they're in yeah. the hotel room. That's true. Um, there's, and then there's one that this one doesn't really count, but Q himself has like a, a rake that has like a camera mm-hmm. inside of it and a microphone. And uh, one of the th- things that uh, was pointed out in the uh, IMDb trivia was that he scolds Bond constantly for losing technology on yeah. the f- in, out in the field. And here he does. He's He uses this rake one time and throws <laughs> it into the bushes at the end of the at the end of the thing um so yeah there's some there's some gadgetry i would give the gadgets a one because they're shitty and and don't really yeah, I'm the same i'm, yeah, I'm definitely so. on the same board uh i think i just like the idea that there's a bond script where the description q rakes the yard i just like that. yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> like like desmond well like what, what the fuck like what am i yeah doing? yeah uh, 
Oh, now we can talk about the song. Um, License to Kill by Gladys Knight, minus the pips. Uh, <laughs> I love this song. Like, I do so too. Much, I, it does not fit with the movie that it is it before. Doesn't. I mean, nope. like, at all. <laughs> like, the, nope. I don't even know. Like, you could put this on The Spy Who Loved Me. You could put this on For Your Eyes Only, mm-hmm. maybe. I mean, there's a lot of Bond films, but it would work. But, like, it's, su- it's such a love story song. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they try to for they try to work in the Carrie Lowell thing. I get, but like this movie isn't a love story <laughs> at all. It really does start to make you think that these songs are more about, like, especially at this point, we're in the MTV era. Yeah, they're trying to sell the single, and it doesn't really matter if the song goes along with the movie or not, right? Yeah, for sure. We saw that a lot with movies in the '80s that started yes. to just put in songs just for the soundtrack just to get yeah. soundtrack sales so i we i don't think we think of bond in that in those terms enough probably that they are a business and they're trying to sell mm-hmm. soundtracks in addition which is used to not be a big part of movie selling but like this is what they're doing here post view to a kill i think they realized oh, this can be like a moneymaker. Like, this could be mm-hmm. huge, you know? Yeah. And so they really try to capture that over the next couple. Like, we had the AHA song, Living Daylights, and now you've got the Gladys Knight song. This song does feel more traditional. They use the mm-hmm. Goldfinger stuff. Uh, yeah. Gladys Knight has a very unique voice. I think she's she's one of the greatest voices. It's funny, mm-hmm. I will, I hate to admit to this, I've seen every episode of The Mass Singer, and uh, oh, yeah. she is the only one that I have guessed correctly after their first performance. And it's just because I just know that voice. Cause like, it's yeah. just such a distinctive voice. Uh, mm-hmm. I never get her like confused with like, you know, other singers around that time. She always stands out to me. Um, and she does a great job with the song. I love the composition. Uh, even though it is at times kind of ripping off Goldfinger, but it works, but I can't give it more than a four just because it doesn't go with this movie at all. Like it just, it's like a five star song, maybe, but it's like a four star mm. as far as it like going with the film. And then I'd even throw in if you asked me to, because that's a big hit. That's also a really well written song. I don't like it as yep. much, but it's a perfectly mm-hmm. fine. But once again, just doesn't yeah. fit the movie. So I can't like walking out of the theater on that song is the weirdest choice they have ever made. Yeah, in a, in darkest a bond, bond <laughs> ever. If you. Ask me to yeah they uh i think they're both yeah i think like what you're saying they're both five yeah. star or five martinis in this case yeah songs, that's true five martinis i did say stars uh but they but they're four for the movie because well that's and maybe weird. even you drag it down to three and a half because of yeah. like how how unrelated to what the movie is uh they are so anyway yeah um those are great songs and i like them yeah. i like both of them better than most of, i know that you like a view to a kill but i don't so yeah yeah well, i'm glad to hear you like this one i feel mm-hmm. like yeah it's like you're about to watch an off like you're about to watch an officer and a gentleman after you hear mm-hmm. that song or yeah. something you know like right. not, not... Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly all right so that'll do it for this week thank you for joining us this week we hope you will join us again next week we will be talking about the first 90s bond the first mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan, they finally got Pierce. They finally yeah. got him. Golden Eye. Yeah, that yep. is uh, Tina Turner. And uh, we do get to talk about Tina Turner, which is always fun. And uh, yes, the movie is called Golden Eye. Also, before we go, we have social media. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter. Uh, we are at GoldSpy007. 
Uh, you can also reach out to me directly on Twitter. I am at SamLoomis13. You can email us at golddiamonddeath007 at gmail.com. Uh, and if you like this podcast and other things under the CinemaSins brand, we also have a Patreon you can join at patreon.com slash CinemaSins. And if you have a second to leave us a five-star review at your podcast listening app of choice, we would appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Until then, keep the martinis dry and shaken, the Baccarat shoe moving, and the Aston Martin fully gassed. This is Chris Atkinson and Jonathan Watkins signing off, and we will see you next mission. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.